that's one of the things that as a CFO I learned was it's all about helping the people who make the games anticipate critical strategic decisions so that they're in a, the right position to make them. They have the right resources to make them financially in terms of people and in terms of comfort and security. It's also really important for a creative team to have the, the space of mind and comfort to be able to work in the right conditions, not being always burdened by uncertainty. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. Don't just see the future, know the future with today's sponsor, Solsten. They make it easy to identify how your audiences and players actually play and what keeps them coming back for more. In a previous life, I used Solsten Product Navigator for a game in Softlaunch and discovered that my audience was more complex than I thought. Instead of one homogeneous group, I was able to identify two unique personas, take a series of calculated risks in our game design, and strike a balance between the two groups. Our approach shifted from making a game for everyone to creating a personal experience for our most valuable players. And we were able to put our resources and time to good use and launch our game with a high level of confidence in its success. Visit go.sourcen.io slash riseandplay, that's S-O-L-S-T-E-N, for a demo and receive 30% off your first Sourcen engagement crafted to your studio's needs. Learn why EA, Supercell, Wooga, and more use Sourcen to create the best human-centric gaming experiences possible. Hi, everyone. Excited to be back on the podcast after a summer break. And today I'm super excited to have with me Marina Bartelemi. Today we will talk about uh, topics that have been a lot on my mind over the past, I would say, year and uh, looking more into investment, management of companies, funding, and as well process of acquisition and PMI. I have uh, an exciting guest today, Marina, who has been on the game development side, but also on financing side and also now going for a fund. So Marina started her career in investment banking for two years and knowing that this was temporary and a means to an end, but she then later joined a development studio in 2014 called Amplitude Studios to support the team making strategy game in a transversal CFO and head of HR role. And after growing the team and the project's ambition, in 2016, the company was bought by Sega. And in 2018, after the PMI, it was time for a new chapter. And she joined an investment company in order to learn early stage investment and be able to support more studios than one at a time in the future. So last year, she took the leap and decided to launch with her business partner, Arthur, the gaming investment fund she wishes had existed back at Amplitude. And she is now the co-founder and managing partner at Pix Capital, a gaming VC fund focusing on early stage development on all gaming segments, content, technology, and platforms. So hi, Marina. Very thrilled to have you on the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Sophie. Really happy to be here and to talk with you 
a number of very exciting topics I feel we can cover today and looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for the context, we are connected with Marina through also several contacts in games. And it's really interesting, like through Serendipity, sometimes you get to connect with the people who are aligned with the topics you are interested in. And for me, I'm always excited to meet, first of all, other female peers in the industry and executive. And you have had the background again, like in really management of company and finance, and now also going on the funding side. And we, for the listeners who have followed some episodes previously, There are not so many funds, first of all, created, funded by women, and not so many women either on the investment side or VC side. So I'm very excited to see more of them, including you, either creating their fund or joining as a LP. So as a start, you've been in different places in the industry, out of industry. And as you started your career in investment banking, I'm really curious how did that lead you to games because I wouldn't have connected both, right? It's a very corporate world, banking, investment, and you could have been like, I don't know, in a consulting you know, firm and so on, but you decided to go into games. So please share with us what happened here. <laughs> yeah, so for me, I guess it started like it starts for pretty much anyone who gets into games at some point is that it started with playing. And I've always played a lot in my childhood, played a lot with my brother, for example. And so to me, very early on, what intrigued me was how games are made. Because when I played as a child, it left me with a very distinct feeling that I did not understand how games like those that I played could be made. For example, I saw a movie or I read a book. I could understand in my mind and wrap my head around the process of how you make those, how you write a book or how you make a movie. That was understandable to me. But when I played a game, I had really no idea at all how these were made. And so to me, it was kind of the closest thing that I had to something magical that I really couldn't clearly grasp when I was a kid. And so it never left me. I had always that in my mind, this curiosity about how do you create the game? How does it come about? How do you create the team? And who works on that? And how does it get shipped and out into the world? So strangely enough, <laughs> I never wanted to make games myself, but I always wanted to understand how they are created. And so that's what has driven me all along. So I always knew that I wanted to work in a studio, but I started in finance because, well, as you said earlier, it was a means to an end financially. And I will always be grateful for that experience because it taught me a lot of discipline and it was extremely useful when I joined the studio afterwards to have had that experience. I mean, it was interesting because it is not the most financial thing you can do in finance. It's actually very generalist. You're not neck deep in numbers all day. It's a lot about understanding a certain process and the dynamics of that process, the dynamics of the growth of companies, of exit strategies. And I thought that was incredibly helpful for what happened afterwards when we sold Amplitude to Sega. It was always my dream to join a studio and to see the behind the scenes of game development. And so I always knew that I wanted to do that from day one. Mm -hmm. 
And something interesting you said about like the different nature of being a CFO or director of finance role in games compared to other industries or maybe more established companies. 2014 was yeah, 10 years ago. What would a CFO do? And I'm also curious to hear about what was the process that you were leading of course, for the part you can share, to selling to SIGA, because I'm really interested in that. Like, what is the CFO role in those conversations when selling the company? Was it opportunistic or was it, you know, intentional? So in terms of my role at Amplitude, it came about really organically. When I joined the company, my role was kind of finance manager, but that meant a lot of things. And essentially it meant everything that was outside of the creation of the game and the marketing. So it encompassed resources management and finance, business planning, cash management as well, but also the legal and very importantly, the HR role as well. So that was a mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a vast <laughs> area and the priorities changed over time. But if I concentrate now on the CFO role and read the finance side of things, that was the urgency in the beginning, the urgency for the studio to trigger that recruitment and my coming on board was the need to have better visibility financially and to really make decisions before you need to make them. And that was actually one of the biggest learning of my time at Amplitude is that, for example, we made the decision of selling the company before it became necessary. Because when you make the decision, when it becomes something that you need to do, you're not really in a favorable position to make the right strategic choices. So we actually made the decision when it was probably the least intuitive moment to make it, meaning that Endless Legend had been released to a great success. It had sold a lot of copies. The company was financially doing amazingly well. We were developing the sequel to Endless Space. I mean, it was the best time in terms of growth, in terms of recruiting all the talents we needed for the team in terms of growing the project's ambitions as well. And yet at that time, we decided, okay, now is the time potentially to sell. And history afterwards was on our side because when the sequel to Endless Space didn't do so well as Endless Legend, we thought, okay, that was the right decision to make. And so that's one of the things that as a CFO I learned was it's all about helping the people who make the games anticipate critical strategic decisions so that they're in the right position to make them. They have the right resources to make them financially in terms of people and in terms of comfort and security. Because being creative when you have always a financial stress burdening you, it's like one of the the worst things that can happen to have the, the team thrive. And it can be also a great motivator in terms of having strict constraints within which you have to work. So I think that financial pressure of delivering the games can be really something that triggers being very efficient and getting the best out in terms of priority in a short time frame. But at the same time, I think it's also really important for a creative team to have the the space of mind and comfort to be able to work in the right conditions, not being always burdened by uncertainty. In terms of the visibility for the company, saying we're here to stay, we're not staking everything on the next game that is released each time and we're not staking the fate of the company on that release. And also in terms of the HR resources, providing visibility in terms of career development and in terms of 
what are the opportunities that we can give you to grow in that company, despite the size of the team not being a 500-people team, but being at the time a more 30, 40, then we doubled in size, but still being a relatively modest size company. And how can we still provide you with that trajectory and that visibility at every level? Oh, very, very nice. And it sounded to me like with the scope of your responsibility, although your official title was CFO, it was uh, covering responsibility of the COO. But, you know, titles in a small company, it's just <laughs> a title. And then actually what you actually do is much more sometimes. But I really appreciated uh, a description of your role as a CFO. It's, I think it's the first time I hear it in a non-financial way, like talking about, I don't know, balance sheet and PNL and whatever responsibility. And you are talking about it in terms of vision. What is the outcome expected and the impact on the company? And it really like stayed with me like that sentence you said about making the decision before you have to make the decision. And I wanted to come back to that point, especially when it comes to selling. Because especially in the environment these days where we see some companies that received funding a few years ago where everything was seemed all right, maybe there was not that much scrutiny in where your company is going, the due diligence on the financial part of the company. And now it's like some companies are in the not a position of favor to sell. And how did that process go? Because how does the company can... Think strategically, you come as a new role as well. Even sharing those kind of ideas, like let's get ready to sell when no one has thought about it. How do those conversations start and how does it serve in the long term of a company, right? Because selling could be a success. Sometimes it's a desperate move. Sometimes, you know, how strategically was it the right move or to be prepared for this based on where Amplitude was? I guess it all starts with the mindset of the founders. Mm. For example, I couldn't have come on board and say, hey guys, now is the right time to sell. How about it? If they were not in that mindset themselves from the beginning, knowing that in order to secure the studio to be here for the next 20, 30 plus years, at some point an exit is going to have to happen. And it could be great for the company to be absorbed by a bigger, stable player. There's nothing I could have said as a newcomer to impulse that process because, I mean, what legitimacy do you have coming in and saying this kind of thing? And actually, the idea did not come from me at the time. It came from the founders of Amplitude who thought, okay, how do we make sure that the studio is still here in 30 years? That's actually the question is not, do we sell now or do we sell in two years from now? It wasn't even in the beginning framing the question as, do we want to exit or do we want to gain some cash? Because they didn't do that in the beginning for that exact purpose. Although they were sensitive to the fact that potentially they won't remain independent forever, it came pretty early on in the life cycle of the company, probably earlier than anyone would have thought. But it's because the first question was, okay, we've made two successes. How do we make sure that we make that for the next 30 years? Do we grow subsidiaries of the company, do we acquire other studios ourselves, which we were in a position to do? And do we grow that way? Do we make more ambitious publishing deals, potentially, and try to grow the company in that direction? Or do we potentially get absorbed by a bigger player, but who shares the same DNA as us? What was great in taking that decision at the time was that financially, we were completely secure. Mm -hmm. We were self-funded. We didn't need to do a fundraising and we certainly didn't need to do an exit. So 
since we weren't pressed by cash consideration, the way we thought about it was we're not in a rush. So we have the time to choose who could be the right partner. And so that gave us the time and it took a year to figure out who really shared our values and will take the studio to the next level and we don't really have to compromise. And that solution was Sega. So we saw a number of partners, potential partners, and we had the freedom to say, we don't necessarily want to work in these people or we don't resonate with that culture. And we had the luxury in a way to choose. And that's why taking that decision at the moment when the company was the strongest allowed us to really choose our partner and to really choose who would be in the driving seat of the company in the future, but who would be aligned with the culture that we're trying to build and with the values that we have and with the games we wanted to make. And Sega was that partner because they had a number of strategy game studio already that shared the same vision as Amplitude on that market, on the quality of the games they wanted to build. So they were kind of a strategy games family of studio where we could exchange best practices and all the people we met were incredibly inspiring. And so that's how we make that decision. It was a people decision, again, more than a financial decision. That's a great answer. And I think it gives me also a lot of perspective in, you know, what's behind the selling of a company. Because I have to admit, when I read sometimes press release on the exits, that's really the financial part that you see how much was it. And it tells a really small part of the story, but not exactly what you just shared, which is what is the long-term vision of the founders? What are the different avenues to execute it? And this is where, you know, a person like you as a CFO and looking with that perspective, offering the options while preserving, you know, long-term, the culture of things, you, basically the value you have created and finding the right partner to go to the next level while preserving what you've created, right? It's, it's not the wish of all founders, but in the case of that wish, this is where, for me, combining that thought with selling the company when you are in a position of power, actually, like where things are well, you have multiple partner interests and you are in position to choose and not more in disparate and like so short where you don't have the options and also making compromise for your own company. Yeah, as you said very rightly, it was really about finding the partner that would empower us to make the games we wanted to make and have the creative freedom to do so as well. Having a partner who said, you can continue to make the games that you want. We will not interfere on creative decisions. We will not tell you, oh no, the lead character should be this or, or that, or this should be the next project you make and not that one. So we will still have the freedom to choose what are the strategic orientations for the projects that you want to make. If you want to go away from turn-based strategy and explore more real-time strategy, you can. If we want to explore other types of strategy-related games, we can as well. If we want to do maybe a game that is entirely unrelated to strategy, I think that would have been possible as well. So that was really a cornerstone for us of choosing the right partner. It was one that would also preserve the creative freedom of the company because that is the backbone of a studio having the creative talent expressing itself. And that was also one of the foundational work we had to do in the finance and HR team is how do you foster that environment and make sure that even though you're selling the company, that environment is preserved. And let's take a moment as well to go on the HR part because 
from my experience, it's quite uncommon that it's within the same person. And so I wonder how that evolved for you to an HRO. It completely makes sense with a vision like how do we give visibility on the future, preserve in the long term. And if you are really focused on people, of course, giving visibility on financial security, how can you project yourself 20 years from now in the same company? Makes sense from that lens. However, it's a very different set of skills as well on HRO. So I wanted to hear your experience. How did you evolve or transfer, or I don't know what was the timing of that, into more HR? What were your responsibility? What were your key learnings or challenges at the time to take those extra responsibilities? <laughs> it's very funny because I didn't come at all from an HR background. I'd never followed any course on HR, any course on psychology of people. So that was completely uncharted territory for me. But it became the part of my role that was the most fascinating and the one in which I had the most fun. Is that in the beginning, of course, the focus in the first few months when I joined was on finance because this is where we really needed the visibility for the company. So it was all about securing that part. And it's always a process. You can always improve the tools that you build and the way that you inform and enlighten the decisions with regards to the numbers and the financial strategy. But once I had put in place those tools, most of my work became HR because the priority for the company was to hire the people that we needed to grow the ambitions of the games. So we wanted to make more complex, bigger games, grow the team from a team of 15, 20 people on one game to 50, 60. And so we had to diversify the pool of talents that we had, finding new people in roles we had that were really specific. But at the end of the day, I think it was the most critical part of my role, the HR part, because mm. all businesses are talent-driven. No matter which industry you are, talent is what will drive the growth and the success of your business. But games being inherently creative that's kind of another layer of complexity of how you foster a culture that allows people to thrive. And so that's what I was really interested in, was how do you make sure that those creative talents express themselves? And I was lucky enough to meet with a very inspirational woman leader at Ubisoft who was an HR at the time and who taught me a lot for that part of the role. And so I will always be thankful to her for that, for mentoring me. And in terms of the learning of that role, I think the first one was that there is a fine balance between listening to advice and being open to advice and having your vision in terms of game teams leadership. Because creative people have to have a strong vision in order to carry it out until the end. But at the same time, they have to be very receptive to the advice of others. And so I found that the members of the team who thrived the most were the ones who had that fine balance psychologically between having a vision that is strong enough they are able to really hold it on their shoulders and carry it until the end. But at the same time, who can be open-minded enough that they don't reject every piece of feedback that they receive. And so I think that was one of the first things. And then one of the first things that we looked in the people we hired, we tried to test that balance in people and how they would react when they were put in different situations mm -hmm. where we could evaluate how they position themselves psychologically for that trade. Another big learning was that 
especially when you're a small team, the smaller you are, the bigger the damage done when you do a hiring mistake. Mm. And the problem is that the games hiring market is extremely competitive. And sometimes you have to hire for roles where there aren't so many people who can do that. And some roles that are really specific to the types of game that you make, to the technology that you use. And when you cross all of those criteria, saying, I want someone who is proficient in that technology, knowing the kind of architecture of the games that we want to make, who has experience in that games, and who is also a number of other qualities that we look for. Once you want to check all of those criteria, sometimes very few people are left that are suitable candidates. And you sometimes have to settle for candidates where you feel that technically they might fit the bill, but you still have a feeling of that's not perfect. There might be some issues down the road and you kind of feel it, you know, but at the time you really need that person. And what we discovered was that it costs you a lot more actually to settle sometimes for an imperfect candidate in the sense that you feel some things might slip a little bit, but at the time it's like 60 or 70% okay. So you're like, okay, let's do it. We really need that role. But at the end of the day, you should wait out until you find the right person or find other solutions potentially in the meantime, but doing that kind of critical hire when you don't really feel it to the core of yourself, that it's the right decision, maybe holding on and trying to do what we can with the resources that we have on board, but with people who are 100% in the culture that we try to foster is the most important thing. Another learning, something that surprised me in that HR role was how psychological it can all get in the sense that you really have to understand people's motivations deeply. It's all about understanding people's motives and sometimes understanding that there is a gap between what people tell you and what they actually want. And so you have to listen really closely and really well to really understand what drives people because there is a unique set of motivations from person to person. As you dig deeper and you listen very carefully, you understand that maybe some people tell you, I want to have more people in my team. I want to manage people. But potentially, they don't have really the skill set to be an amazing manager. Maybe their own personality and skill set is more suited to being a specialist. But what they want to express to you in the sense that they want to grow their team is that they want to have more responsibility or they want to grow in their role in one way or another. And potentially, it's about having that open discussion with them. Is this the right way for you, considering your personality and your skill set, to achieve your objectives? And sometimes people tell you, I want more people, or I want to grow in that direction or that direction, because they feel it's like the only avenue to show that they're growing in responsibility in the company. And it's your role as an HR to show people how many options they actually have and how many ways you can show them that they are valued and that they don't have to fit a role that they feel is the necessary path, even though sometimes it might not be for them. Not everyone is suited to be a manager and having to mentoring other people. And some people are really suited to be an expert in their field and maybe having a little bit less people to manage. And some people are really suited for making others grow and are maybe technically a little bit less proficient. And it's about showing people what can be the path and letting them choose in accordance with their own 
personality and what will make them the happiest in the end. And for that last part, I see here the same overlap in your approach, like listening, like you did have a conversation with founders before going for the selling of a company and presenting the options, understanding really what are the needs. So this is where I see now the connection as well, why for the context, it was a fitting role for you with a similar approach, because it doesn't matter if it's finance or HR in the end, the approach remains the same, like focus on the motivation and also really inquiring, listening, asking the right question to really understand the deep motivation and offering the right options that matches when uh, the real motivation behind what people express. I wanted to reflect on those other two learnings that you shared because I had my own path as well, leading teams. And I totally agree, especially when it comes to hiring. I think it's a key factor in the success of a team because it touches so many things, culture, people, complementary, the needs you have at different phases. And hiring the wrong, not people, but hiring when it's not aligned with a values, culture, or direction, it's very costly in the long term. And it's mm -hmm. my learning as well was it's better to suffer for some time until you find, and each person you will meet anyway is taking you one step closer to who you're looking for because you don't know until you know. But you said like that traits, that balance between having a vision, a strong vision, without having ego, because that's about ego, Difficult, but then the trait that also I found was very helpful, especially in the industry when we know it can go this way, that way. You have to evolve as a company over time, especially creatively. In my teams as well, we identify it as what we call the growth mindset, but it encompasses many other traits like openness for feedback, ability, flexible mind to change and question your own beliefs to see other viewpoints and so many things. So yes, I can relate a lot to these two points. Our second part of the conversation I wanted to have with you today is really about, with the learnings also, you had an investment company in early stage. So you've been also there for some time before you founded as well your own fund. I wanted to hear more based on those learning. What are the observations you've had on the market, the gaming? I'm sure you have had some understanding, the things that you saw really work for you that I'm sure are part of the core ethos of the fund you have created today. And maybe the gaps you see as well in the market that maybe others can think about, because I'm pretty sure there are needs as well in funding and ways of funding in the space. So for me, the fund was always the end goal. Even when I started at Amplitude, I told them, one day I want to create my own gaming investment fund and I'm here. I will learn everything that I can about how you make games. And one day I will do that. So I was always extremely transparent that this was my goal. And the reason for that, it starts back to what I told you at the very beginning of the conversation is what I wanted to understand how you make games, but I don't necessarily see myself as a creator of games. That's not my ambition. I've always seen myself more in a support role. I really thrive when I can really help the teams and provide them with the environment or the resources that they need to really make the best games possible. And that's where I see the contribution that I can bring is really supporting the teams. And also it satisfies my own curiosity is because I want to dive deeper into how many types of games are made. And I don't just want to see how you craft this 
type of game very specifically and spend four years doing that one, I really want to hop on and see, oh, okay, what's the key to success to that type of game and this one? And that is really fascinating to me. And so that's why I think this fun and having the opportunity to see all those types of projects across the board in gaming is a real incredible intellectual challenge, but at the same time is very fulfilling. And so what led me there was this first selfish motive. And the second part is, as you said, something that comes from what I've seen through my experiences was as gaming grew, there has been a lot of funding that has poured into the industry And that's also great news that so many investors, both specialized in gaming and not specialized, have embraced how big and how full of potential this industry is. But at the same time, the sector has grown faster, probably, than what the specialized financing uh, has been able to follow. So I feel that today, some areas of gaming are super well financed, like mobile gaming or game tech. You have a lot of institutional financing, a lot of specialized gaming VCs there. But I feel that there is still a big market gap and a need for more funding, especially for premium games that have been a little bit left behind in that sense of institutionalizing the financing because of historical reasons linked to the business model of premium games. But thankfully, this business model has changed. And now with the games as a service model being widely applied in premium games, well, it has changed the paradigm. And today, premium games can also be a very fruitful territory for venture capital investments. But still, they're a little bit behind in terms of how many venture capitalists and how many VC funds go there uh, to make early stage investments in particular. I guess that if you're looking at series B, C, D, and, and later, you have a lot of capital pouring in, but at the very early stages in terms of seed and series A, where most likely you have a vision, a team, and if you're lucky, you have a vertical slice. Mm-hmm. At that stage, not so many people outside of the publishers are willing to take that risk on something that is still so uncertain and where you have to project yourself on, okay, what will that game look and feel like in the end? And still the industry in terms of financing is not yet mature in terms of the number of funds that feel comfortable with making those decisions early on. And so that's why I specifically wanted to create that fund, which of course, we'll invest in mobile as well. We'll invest in game tech and platforms. But that is not shying away as well from investing in premium PC console games, AAA, AA, from early stages. Because there is a lot of value to be created there. And there is a lot of need as well to support the founders. Because as the premium games industry has been a little bit left aside from the VC craze, of these last few years, at the same time, the marketing strategies and the go-to-market strategies of premium games have not evolved as fast as well, let's say, as maybe mobile gaming. So I feel that this is an area of the industry where you have so much potential in helping founders think more strategically on how do you modernize the ways to market the games? How do you take the key learnings from the mobile industry in terms of knowing very precisely every euro that you spend 
what is the impact that it had on your visibility, on your wish lists, on the number of copies that you sold, and v being very disciplined in terms of marketing and maybe changing a little bit the mindset of how we approach the marketing of premium games. Because today, what we see is that it is so competitive that having a great game is no longer enough. And even having a great game with traditional marketing strategies of just doing some PR, some influencers, some events, community development and management is not even enough anymore. Mm. You need to go even a few steps beyond that. And so that's where we want to support game creators as well, is we see the fund as a platform to pull this knowledge, to pull these best practices and to really bring value to the creators this way too. In areas where maybe they see that as a necessary pain, mm. but it's not what they want to do. Founders do not want to spend their time structuring financially the company, strategizing for the next fundraising, and potentially they don't really want to spend their time as well just digging really deep into the nitty-gritty of how am I going to generate more views for this or that marketing asset? Which channels am I going to communicate on? And what will be the ROI on my campaign? But all of this can be the difference between what makes a successful premium game studio today and what makes a game that will be one of the thousands that ship each year on Steam. And despite its inherent qualities, it will not find its public. So I feel that this is where we can make the biggest difference with that fund. Very nice. I don't know so much about the premium market, but for what you shared, explained, it makes a lot of sense as well. Like you're consistent in your own thinking, Marina, anticipating. <laughs> so being ready before you have to be ready. So I really like appreciate the long-term thinking and maybe for others to consider as well to look at it a bit more closely. I wonder as well if you do see some gaps or have your own theory, ethos about how you evaluate the studios you acquire and if you could be willing to share a bit more, you know, what are your principles when it comes to what is a good food for your portfolio? What are you evaluating if you're willing to share? Yeah, yeah, with pleasure. I think today the industry is facing a little bit of a, a wake-up call in terms of how it's crowded and the number of tools that are being released that will help very small team craft games with very big ambitions. So I think we will see so many more small studios emerge and there will be a lot of noise and it's only going to grow because so many people will be empowered to make great games. So I think that what we discussed just a little bit earlier with the importance of really thinking very strategically about the marketing of premium games is only going to intensify. And so as a fund, we will receive, I think, even more and more promising projects in the future and projects that look promising, <laughs> actually. But it is our role to determine, okay, which ones we feel have the best potential, of course. And There are three things we look at in the beginning. The first one is the vision for the company. So we are a VC fund. We are not a publisher or even a project-based fund. So we are very interested in where you want to bring the company in the future. It's not a two-year plan or a four-year plan. It's really even longer term than that. And especially because there is a big difference between content and game technology and platforms. You can potentially build a unicorn in game technology in two, three years, 
this is not something that you can easily do with a premium game studio. Potentially, you can do that with a mobile game studio if you hit the nail on the head. But with a premium game studio, it's more timelines like between five and 10 years. So we're always interested in long-term vision and where you want to bring the company and how the first game that you are making, because generally we're investing at the first game stage, reflects that long-term vision and reflects where you want to go in the future or how is that a foundational block that will allow you to achieve that vision. So that's the first thing. The second one is the team, of course. So because we're investing so early, we're investing based on a vision, on a team, and on a prototype. So the team is really a foundational block because even though it might not be complete at the moment, and sometimes you have teams that are only halfway complete or even a third complete, it's do they have a strong vision of what are the talents that are needed to achieve the ambitions of the game. So that is really important. And also the founder's mindset. Coming back to something we said earlier, especially this fine line between having a core vision by which they want to stand and in which the founders deeply believe because this is what will carry them through mm-hmm. the ups and downs that will necessarily happen. And at the same time, being receptive before it's too late to any constructive feedback. So that's something that we really pay attention to. And then the prototype and the game itself. And then there are several things about that. So investing before we have a prototype or vertical size is really hard, except if the team has already demonstrated working together that it can ship good games, in which case that can be a different conversation, but let's assume that it's a newly formed team. So the game itself, what we look for is first, is it aesthetically differentiated or memorable? Meaning when I have seen it once, I want to remember that it's this game and not another. Mm. The second one is the gameplay. Is it fresh enough or innovative? Or if it's not necessarily, how does it serve the broader purpose of the game? And how does it serve the other pillars who will be more innovative. If there is innovation in the aesthetics or if there is innovation in the storytelling, not everything has to be radically innovative, but how do all these things work together? And then the last thing is the storytelling and the mood of the game and the atmosphere. This, of course, changes whether you're a narrative game or a solo player game or a multiplayer game. But I would say that This third pillar is generally the target feeling of play that you have. And if it's a a narrative game or a solo game, it's more like the atmosphere, the big moments in the storytelling, the emotions that we want to convey. And if it's a multiplayer game, it's more what are the highlights of the fun that we want to have and how do we achieve that? And then the fourth aspect that really ties it all together and can really make or break everything else is how the game is scoped and the funding and the resources that will be hired are scoped with regards to the ambitions of the game. Because one of the most common sources of studio failures that I've seen was that either the project was most likely too ambitious Mm. for the funding that was available, the time and the capacity for hiring 
the right people for that project. So if you are doing a very ambitious multiplayer game, do you really have the resources to hire the technical people who will be very critical to supporting that architecture and all the technical challenge that come with it? Do you have the capacity to attract them? Do you have the funding required to bring that about? And so I think that having ambitions that are really well matched with the resources that you have is really a critical asset because there is nothing worse than just running out of time and out of money when you have not demonstrated anything. Mm. And so this is a very strategic reflection that I think has to be anticipated a lot months before, even years before, sometimes in order to be here in the long run. And the scoping is something that we really look at very precisely. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot for sharing those uh, pillars of focus and diligence, I would say, to evaluate to you because... It's probably much harder if you don't understand how games are made to really understand really to that level of lens, I would say, like close zoom in to really understand what the studio is saying is offering, is really offering. We discussed this as well offline, like how you were leading this conversation with the founders and so on. But that could be for another episode. So as we're wrapping up the conversation today, it's just the beginning of your exciting adventure and fun. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes, even like helping in some way. Where are you now with the phone? And is there something beside this episode today that we can do to help? <laughs> Thank you. Well, today with the phone, we are starting to make our first investments. So we're incredibly oh, congratulations. happy about <laughs> Thank you. We're incredibly happy about that. We're starting this summer. Of course, the fund starts with a small size because you always have to start somewhere and the economic mm-hmm. context doesn't really help You know, investors being really proactive in putting more money out there in areas of gaming that they maybe understand a little bit less because we want to be a generalist gaming fund and not focus only on this or that vertical. So you know, in terms of uh, our own fundraising, we're still ongoing, but... Now is a very exciting time to invest, I feel, because a lot of studios need financing. We're seeing amazing projects come out of those teams. And so really happy to be able to start this. And as we hopefully demonstrate that we can find some very promising studios, that we will grow as well. And the goal is not just to focus on early stage, but at the end to be a platform for a lot of financing needs of the industry, but even at different levels of maturity or maybe different types of instruments. So that's only the beginning for us of an entrepreneurial journey that hopefully would last (laughs) decades. That's what we want to do because for Arthur and I, it's a dream come true. So we really want to do that in the long run. I can feel the passion. And again, I'm uh, really impressed and inspired by the long-term thinking. What you said from the early days, you were already thinking about that moment. And with this focus and uh, a lot of consistency, I can see like the path in all the decisions you've made previously. So really thinking long-term. So I have confidence from where you have approached even your previous roles. What you're building is definitely for the long-term. So I wish you the best of luck. And like I said, I'll be around to help in some way, whether through Rise and Play or myself, to help this fund thrive. Thank you. If you have, I mean, any promising studios, interesting games, please send them our way. We'll be really happy to get in touch with the team and meet, meet talented people. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thanks a lot, Marina, <laughs> for the conversation and Thank I'll you. see you around and offline. Take care. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io and there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week and until the next time,